This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash c-suite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey all, this was a somewhat surreal episode for me to return to after we recorded it in what seemed such a, a long time ago, back in 2016. I usually save these episodes for later in the season, but COVID as of late has been cruel to my family. And my dad's back in the hospital with leukemia, so it's put me in a bit of a reflective state, I suppose. I mentioned before in season one that I'd have my longtime friend, the neuroscientist Nikos Lori, on at some point in the show. This is the first and just a part of our conversation on Carl Schroeder's Lockstep, a science fiction novel about time, the economy, and the hard choices that we make in life. Though in truth, it's more of a meditation or delve, I suppose, into notions of self, consciousness, mind, and the sorts of gods we construct to make sense of ourselves or give reasons for the sublime. So join us today as we Give pause for a moment to everyday life to see how one artist perceived of our future and what that can be like. I hope you enjoy. I haven't read too much into the particulars of the one that was given citizenship in Saudi Arabia, although I suppose they saw Bicentennial Man and figured anything more animated than Robin Williams in that movie would suffice for human. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, there are some actors that, you know, they get really improved by, by the use of CGI. You know, there's several that I can think of. One of the things that I've been thinking about, and I don't know if this is already the moment to start thinking about it. I've been thinking about if science fiction um, is a term that makes any sense anymore. And, and the reason why I'm saying this is because the whole idea of science fiction is that you had normal human beings living 
in a high technology world. Mm -hmm. With the advancement of biotechnology, it doesn't it no, it, it no longer seems realistic. It, it seems to me, and I wonder if you think you see it the same way, is this that we are likely to change in so many ways that if you if you did a realistic movie about what society is going to be in 100 years, no one presently alive will be interested because it will be just so completely different than what they're experiencing. It's not Arthur C. Clarke, but it's one of the more, it's a well-known one, which is the sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and vice versa. It's yes. been a... Yeah an axiom of the genres for a long time and also mm -hmm. something thrown at them to indicate that the line between sci-fi and fantasy is not as clean as we would like it i've heard speculative fiction thrown about as the more recent catch-all term but to your point so, so spectacular fiction speculative or spectacular but it's oh. kind of the catch-all you know it's the idea that everything within those categories can be summarized by the notion of asking what if and then following right. from there, which right. to a certain taxonomic degree is interesting, but outside of talking about ludonarratives and where you're being published lately in which literary theory magazine or site is not of interest to most people, or honestly to me at this point. But there is one thing that is interesting, and that is that Disney just bought Fox. <laughs> yes. Disney just bought Marvel, which means that Disney now owns Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel. Yes. Well, I think this gets to something I was just, the point I'm cogitating through cold medicine to get to is that we've already expanded the concept of personhood too far in some regards. We have made corporations people and given right. them the rights of such, despite not administering certain penalties or punishments that we would give to people who committed the things corporations do. And actually, we give tax reductions to corporations. And, and one of the amazing things is that people like Messi or Ronaldo from Portugal, they have created companies that basically are officially what earns them the money, and then they receive the money from that companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, a lot of people on the, um, on the Paradise Papers uh, are doing such things, which basically, which is a very interesting concept, is that you give away your money, then to that corporation, mm -hmm. then you become the administrator of that corporation, and then you spend the money on yourself. But because you're a corporation, you have lower taxes. And since you are effectively a collective person, you can protect your assets more effectively is where I should have used it at that point. But yeah, you can, by incorporating yourself, you can protect right. yourself more effectively. So. You know, maybe should maybe everyone should just decide it. I want, please let me be a corporation. Well, let me throw know? this back to you then. Yes. Okay, so as you were saying, at, while we stretch the boundaries of what defines our own bodies and selves, we may reach a point where with cybernetics, portions of ourselves, to quote Joan Rivers, are 30 and younger, perhaps not owned by us directly. So if we are incorporated in the future, do we become the majority shareholder of ourselves up until a point where we have given too much of our original self away? And this goes back, to, I guess, to the, the ship of Theseus question here of, do we remain who we are when we no longer own who we were? The, the question is that, I mean, I, as you know, I work in neuroscience. Sure. And so what happens in neuroscience is that one of the big questions is what is consciousness and how does consciousness arise? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I mean, to make a long story short, it seems that consciousness is mostly the crossing between the, um, the representation of the structures in your body. I mean, mainly, mainly the sense of the presence of the body together with the percept- with the narrative of past events that you've observed through your, through your eyes, through your smell. And by integration both, you, you obtain an abstract entity that is the same for both entities. So you obtain something that moves in space and time and something that is always present. And so the thing that moves in space and time, but that is always present, is what you then use to develop this, this feeling that you have a self. I mean, this is easy to say. It's hard to implement, you know. Well, sure, you end up with arguments like Kurzweil's transhumanism, where the idea is that the self should be, or the essential self, should be fully transferable, and thus are right. human carbon-based vessels like, discarded. Like there, there's a book, uh, Kiln People. Kiln People, do you know it? No. It's, it's a K-I-L-N. That's actually a very... Uh, fancy. It's a very interesting movie offered to me by a friend. And the, the idea in the movie is that you can, that they were developing this technology that you basically you can transfer your consciousness to these kind of plastic lattice bodies, mm-hmm. you know. But the problem is that these plastic lattice bodies, they only last a, a day. And so they, they gain memories, they do the same things you do because they have basically the same information you have, but they only last a day. And then they come back and if you want, you can accept their memories as part of your history. It's almost like having a May-December romance with your avatars. Yes, that's yes, something like this. Well, I think that that vision there touches upon what we wanted the Internet to be in the 80s and 90s. This right. concept that we could cast our disparate and separate, our disparate and isolated selves, our varying personas into this other realm, this space, this cyber realm, and at the end of our day or of our wanderings, recollect all of that and choose what we wish to integrate into ourselves as the whole, the individual we carried or defined as me. Right. And I think, oddly enough, social media destroyed that. Yeah. And uh, I I I think that basically one of the problems is the lack of locality. I mean, we, we are really not in the other place. Uh, I mean, our faces can be, <laughs> but we're not really in the other place. Well, it, it touches upon a friend of mine moved recently, and he expressed to me that he was anxious that he was moving for the wrong reasons, that he was going to escape things that were bothering him here about the world and how it was teaching him to be, and that he was afraid in the place he was going to that he was only seeking a I'm phrasing this wrong, that he he was pursuing a different promise of peace and prosperity, phrased differently, but again, another false external offer that would not give him the profundity he was looking for of wisdom and insight and peace and calm. And I don't know, maybe it was because it was three o'clock in the morning when he said this to me, and probably about as eloquently as I just said to you. I looked at him and I said, you realize the only thing you take with you when you go somewhere is yourself. Or something to that effect. Right. In other words, right. you are always where you are, and everything right. that is you goes with you. So whatever you're running away from here will also be yeah. what you're running away from there, because right. it's you. And as in a, to your point, you're just moving your location, or you're the right. locus that is the locus in which perhaps the center of the black hole that you are, in which everything else revolves, your little universe. I mean, there was this shirt where people had this point. 
and the, and the, and under the point it said center of the universe. You know? <laughs> you, you will appreciate this. Then one of my friends, he is teaching philosophy, and one day one of his students walked up to him and said, "Do you know where I could find some good books on solipsism?" <laughs> So I suggested the following counter today, which we've been we've been having fun with. Okay, what is the answer to this question here? It's almost a Zen cone. And the one I suggested today was politics. Yes, you exist, but your voice doesn't matter. Yes. Well, your voice does matter in the sense that um, I personally am someone that is somewhat involved in politics. So I do talk with, I do have the ple- the privilege, if you want, of talking with some of the. Um, experts in political science and some of the top-notch politicians here in Portugal. Have you found any of them to be conscious? Yeah, they are conscious. They are conscious. It's just that the whole process of voting itself, you know, it's 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 a question of, for instance, America. Mm-hmm. What are Americans really like? Are Americans really like Obama? Or are they really like Trump? Or are they really like Bush? Or are they really like Clinton? And you, you know? can't look purely at the statistics for the voting because it only represents, by and large, between 40 and 60 percent of the populace that is capable of voting. Well, uh, you have to exclude probably the illegal immigrants or the people that have already, you know, that are in parole. I think many states in the United States, people that are in parole cannot vote, right? There are a few laws that are still existing today that strip fundamental rights away from folks in prison. And I believe vote, I couldn't tell you which states off the top of my head, but I believe voting rights is constantly argued about back and forth. And right. it's a, that gets back to your earlier question, I think of inalienability, which is, do the, does the right exist because it is governed, it is granted to us by the organiz- the institution in which we live, the country, the nation of which we are civilian, or is the right inalienable to our existence as a person? I remember in history, yeah. I remember in history many times where those rights were not evident. No. Um, it's Margaret if that- you were black in southern United States in the 18th century, I would say they are very non-existent. I think when you can have an actual rational discussion over how much of a person constitutes a person, you know, the Three-Fifths Amendment, or similar things like that, you... It is hard for me back to look back at that and wonder, how can we create tiers of human nature, except the constructs of the time of having races and sub-races allowed for that discourse to move more freely? I, I, w- I would go one step further. I agree with you, but I'll go one step further. One of the interesting things that, that is often not looked upon is that many of the African slaves that were took from Africa to the United States they were captured with the strong and active collaboration of local African groups. Yes. Groups which already existed when the Portuguese got there. I mean, they already had strong, stronger groups than others that were, that had dominion over other groups. Oh, sure. Like in, in Mexico, in present day Mexico, uh, the stronger uh, groups, which I believe, if my memory fails me, doesn't fail me, the Mayas, had a strong dominion over their neighbors. And so, and actually this goes back to science fiction, you mm-hmm. know, that the word robot comes from the Czech word for slave. Mm-hmm. So I think robots and, com- and computer used to be a profession where you'd hire the mathematician 
to do computations. So those are the computers. My my grandfather worked for Midlife, and he was a calculator, effectively. He sat there with the ledger. And I forget the dimensions of it, but it was somewhere on the length of about, I'd say, 25 to 30 inches long. And the majority of his work was the actual calculation of actuarial tables. Right. And so... So that, that, those jobs existed, you know, mm-hmm. as example, your grandfather. And so one of the issues is that it is our nature, maybe it is our laziness, but to search for slaves, okay? I think, and this is partly just from the anthropological evidence we found to date, we are driven to reduce the amount of time and energy we dedicate to strenuous things. Right. And that was more pressing when... The loss of food, the loss of sleep could more likely prove fatal or reduce your capacity to find the needed things in life. Nowadays, we have the luxuries of grocery stores and automated shipping services. Right. But that, this is, I suppose, from the biological anthropology point of view, our genetic code is not shifted sufficiently from that point. We haven't had anything to really push us out of that. We have very, for instance, white skin arose mostly in Europe, actually only in Europe, because there was a great icing, you know, a great period of strong, strong cold that basically killed all the slightly darker tones of skin in in a lot of Europe. Mm-hmm. Because um, in, in regions of the world where this never occurred, the whiteness that you see in Northern Europeans didn't arise anywhere else. and And so... There's very little, there is evolution in the last 150,000 years, but it's, it's really tiny in comparison with, you know, what technology is bringing. Another thing that most people do not know is that there is more genetic variety within Africa than between Africa and everywhere else in the world. In, in a certain sense, all the Europeans are descended from Somalians, okay? Oh, this is the Great Rift Theory, right? Yeah, yeah, the Great Rift Theory. Basically, we came from the region of Somalia. We went from Somalia to Yemen. And from Yemen, we got up and then spread all over the world. So there is a specific African group that is very similar genetically to the white population. And that's the, the African population of those regions. And so... So it's very, uh, I mean, it's, that's why biotechnology, I think, is relevant. Is I think that what kind of world will we build if we can change ourselves? Okay. I think part of the, and this is something I encounter both as a millennial and also someone on the older end of the millennial spectrum, when I notice my own resistance to newer innovation sometimes, it is easy to forget that technology is a fundamental part of culture, and culture is a fundamental part of our ability to evolve. Part of why we argue that humans are so wide, as widespread as they are is that we have managed to bypass a good portion of the biological, the purely biological evolution with a more rapidly changing tool called culture, which is it's hard to call it a tool because it's more of a host or body in which many things are contained. But we are able to, in the course of a hundred years, a thousand years, ten years even, alter things around us in such a fashion that prevent us from fundamentally needing to change too much. Technology makes us not need to change, but now it gives us the possibility of drastically changing overnight 
if a certain group of people so chooses. To a certain degree, it's a form of inertial. It's, it's, a, it's a form of inertial resistance or a barrier, but it is, it is incredibly fluid. And I think as we've seen in just the politics of, say, of the states of what is considered, again, I'll go back to my friend who teaches philosophy. One of the challenges he has in teaching that is folks often forget or mistake what is legal for what is right or what is ethical. And as we've seen in the past 20 years, what is legal and what is ethical have met in some places and where they've met has evolved constantly over. Folks can argue over whether that's a to our detriment or to our betterment, but the change has occurred itself. How, how would you define ethical outside of the belief on divine, of, uh, on divine commandments? You know, this is a hard one because I think it's one of the places that atheists tend to struggle the most or folks who follow with an existential point of view or perspective. You know, Viktor Frankl liked to argue that the best of us died and the rest of us were yeah. left behind. Right. And his form of existential ethics were born out of one, what is needed to survive, and two, what is needed to prevent the awful from recurring again. So it was, in some ways, a form of widely applied pragmatism. I mean, we've had Immanuel Kant and his attempts at right. trying to create a categorical non-divine, or in essence... But basically, he gets, he gets the golden rule, right? Right, and the golden rule is itself... I see the golden rule applied a lot in business business ethics, and yeah. I wish it were not, because one of the things we stumble upon, and this is, again, my background is partially in anthropology, there's a fundamental assumption to the golden rule that does not always work, which is that you wish to be treated in the same way as other people do. And, and it assumes true. a familiarity of this other person as being so like you in every important way, and therefore preempting the need to listen to them. Further, right. Well, I think one of the, I mean, there is a parallel in Judaism that you probably heard, which is this: they had this annoying student that went to talk with Shammai, and he says, "Teach me all of uh, all of the laws of Judaism while I'm standing in one feet." Right. <laughs> uh, and so, and the Shammai grabbed a shovel or something like that and hit him. <laughs> yes. And away. And so he went to Elel. And asked the same question. And Yilal looked at him and said, do not do unto others what you do not want to be done to you. Mm -hmm. Jesus had a different perspective, which is similar, but it's slightly different, which is you have to love God above all things and then do unto others as you want to be done to you. So he moves from a passive to an active, but he, but in order to do that, he puts a prior command, which is to love God above all things. And then finally, he says, so the, the, the young guy was talking to Jesus, of course, not the same young guy, but still the same model. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, okay, I've done all of that. And then Jesus said, now, okay, then give all that you have to the poor and follow me. And then he goes away because he had too much money and was not interested in doing that. <laughs> and so And so Jesus says, with sadness, it is easier for the for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle mm -hmm. for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that there are two ways of doing. One of the things um, many people have asked: What is the needle? What does the eye of the needle mean? Mm -hmm. And what does camel mean? I think the best definition for me is that the eye of the needle was the little door in the castles. Okay. Yes. That you could only pass if you were a single person without any cargo, anything, okay? 
If you wanted to go with your camel, with all your wealth, in, into the eye of the needle, you cannot, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's a way of saying that the problem of the rich is that they want to, to transport themselves with all their wealth and all their power, but at the end, you're naked, you know? At the end, you only have your selfhood, as the, you said at the beginning of the conversation. The, it's, uh, I'm going to forget the play right now, but you can't take it with you. Right. I think it gets to, because this conversation started and well, I just realized we're 25 minutes in and we've yet to actually introduce you. So I know okay. who you are, but our, our listeners should at some point find out that as well. And uh, you also brought the book to my attention that we're, this guy, we prompted yeah. this conversation. So why don't you, before I forget, introduce yourself and what is it, what, and then the book that you decided to bring to my attention, which has sparked all of this. Uh, my name is Nicholas Lori. Uh, it is a weird name. It's an Argentinian name. Uh, it's a combination of Spanish and Italian, like most names in Argentina. I had a, I have a PhD in physics uh, associated to brain imaging. Now I'm doing my second PhD in computer science. I've worked in neuroscience most of my adult life. And uh, I love uh, screenplay writing. I took a screenplay writing course at uh, USC when I was a professor there. And Jared has been my colleague and friend for many, many years. And uh, the book that I brought to Jared's attention sparked my my mind because of this simple argument. He's saying, if the speed of light cannot be passed, then all of science fiction about space travel is, is nonsense. And this sparked my idea of, okay, Two questions. First, how can we travel in into the faraway stars if we cannot pass the speed of light? And second, is this really the direction that science fiction is going towards space? Or there's a different type of science fiction towards the inside, towards biotechnologies? And that's really the most important science fiction. That's the idea that right. we, and that we're going to discuss. To the author, Carl Schroeder's credit, the book Lockstep, I think, tries to apply both of those solutions. Whether that works right. in terms of the science and in terms of the narrative is something we can talk about. But the core answer he offers is cryosleep. And right. it's a it's an interesting way he he manufactures it in, in an interesting fashion. The initial way cryosleep is introduced, of course, is the classic, I'm going to, I fall asleep in a pod, I got iced over, all of my right. biological functions are brought to as, as close to absolute zero as possible. Effectively, right. I'm dead. And then there's right. enough, it's not explained how, but the technology is capable more or less of reviving you from that hibernation state right. and providing you with sufficient oxygen and nutrients to keep you from immediately expiring. That, that's, that we can call that the large-scale cryogenic space flight. Right, you know, which is, basically, basically, you carry your body, and you carry your entire body. Right, and it's one of the core assumptions that's often put into place as a necessity for the human species traversing across vast tracts of the universe, faster right. than light travel included. If you argue that faster than light travel is impossible, then it is, as Schroeder presents, probably the only way that a given individual could survive long enough. Okay. There's a, there, there are other mechanisms that people have thought. I mean, one of them is the mechanism. I mean, but I'm not going too much into that. I mean, the, one of the problems of that is, uh, is of course, 
I think one problem that it doesn't uh, strike through, but maybe I misread some aspect of it, is the monetary issue. I mean, yeah, I think that's massive. The to your beginning point, the economy in this universe that he's fashioned is simultaneously complex and oversimplified, which is endemic of a lot of sci-fi. But it's right. I guess my question to you is: How much of it do you feel is a consequent of? the cryosleep technology being so persistent and how much of it is the author saying, I want this to exist as part of the narrative force? I think the problem is that uh, I think his entire, I mean, this page, this book he wrote is, is about his perception that, okay, we're not going to go over the speed of light. Right. And if we're not going to over, go over the speed of light and we are doing the space travels, then uh, what can I do with it? And then he goes from there. I don't think he answers the question. I mean, for instance, why would people go there? Not enough to say because it's there. Because, <laughs> I mean, because I mean, going, for instance, to Mars is like installing a colony in the North Pole. I mean, people could have gone to the North Pole and start a new form of living in the North Pole, but nobody was interested in that. Okay, so I think what we can do here for the audience, for folks who haven't read the book so far, is lay out or try to lay out the argument or the yes. narrative. So the book is focused around this one character, 17-year-old Toby McGonagall, who wakes up in his yes. small rocket ship on the way to a comet, I believe, called Rocket, which he is supposed to colonize for his family, right. only to discover that his entire ship is dead, nothing is functioning, and that he is barely able to survive in a zero in a oh, zero gravity zero degree and zero oxygen environment he manages to engage his vr system quickly turns on some of his virtual companions and they interact with a variety of bots autom- semi-autonomous bots to try repairing the ship as he attempts to figure out what the hell has occurred and quickly susses out that a micro speck of dust has blown through the rocket at phenomenal speed and eventually punctured the other side, basically killing them dead in space. Right. So then leads us to the question of why is he here doing this? Or I guess as Jason Lockhart, my writing teacher by way of Juno Diaz, would say, why now? What has changed that has led to this needing to be told? And the argument Schroeder presents is that the Earth itself has been taken over by trillionaires. So do you want to address that? Uh, one of the things that you know, as you remember, I wrote the screenplay that you you know you you read a little bit, and actually also in the, in that text as as in Schroeder's book, there is a, this idea that trillionaires take over the world and they so much oppress humanity to turn them either into slaves or to completely eliminate them altogether. Right. Um, Effectively, uh, the majority of humanity becomes either subservient or a biological robot. Right. And so given that, I mean, it's, it's a dystopian perspective. And so they're trying to migrate. And so they, they're trying to, to flee oppression in a repeat of Moses's travel outside of Egypt. So in that sense, it's nothing new. And that comes back to the issue of why would people go to outer space? Because if you remember the history of the United States or Portugal, you know, people went for money or to avoid religious persecutions. Otherwise, people did not go. And and so, uh, rather than only talking about this book, I wanted to ask you a question. Sure. Science fiction has often been a, a view into the future, mm-hmm. right? A view of uh, how to avoid dystopian futures or how we manage to handle dystopian futures. In this kind of shoulders book, 
it has a it has a rather bleak ending, <laughs> and and so and, and even the I, mean, I would even, argue the book itself is by and large bleak when you realize that everything only functions, everything only improves because of the actions of a super powered seventeen year old, which I will get right. into. Narratively, right. that bothers me, but I, I and, guess what you're you're arguing that the improvement they offer isn't much of one. Right. And, and so basically, I think that it's very important for books. I mean, I like the realism sure. of the book. I don't like the bleakness of the book in the sense that I think bleakness is often easier to do than, than happiness, than, than reasonable happiness, you know? Okay, so there's a, there's a narrative tool or a technique I think we can apply to talking about stuff that occurs in this book. And it's something I found interesting. I know I, I must have, I think I bounced it off to you earlier. As I've probably said on this podcast, if not this one, then others, I used to watch The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which was a show from my childhood. And a fair while ago, they interviewed the writers of that. And those folks were asked, what made the best few episodes work? And the, I forget the exact language he used. I'll go look it up. But I remember it being said as those few episodes always contained these four ingredients. They were sad, they were funny, they were beautiful, and they were weird. And I think to your point... The book seems to weigh too heavily on the sad or the bleak, on the yeah. everything is wrong yeah. and awful and right. does and, not and deliver it, enough of the why, where is the beauty that has emerged out of this strangeness? Where is the uniqueness that is right. so intrinsic to humanity that it would still survive? Yes. And in ways, and I think he tries to do that. So whether it's successful or not, we can get to, but there, there's so much to this book. And I think for me, that's one of the biggest problems. I read, I've read this book twice and... Each time I've put it down and gone, why couldn't you just make three books? Right. I mean, I think that that, that is clear. And, and I think that one of the problems is that I, I, I saw that too. I mean, that, that in some ways it's overly dense and complex. And it's, I think one of the things that I would be missing is, I mean, I think I would have loved if there was a colony of other people like him waiting for him, you know? Right. And instead what you have is... Toby wakes up, he discovers he's dead in the water, he freaks out yeah. and realizes, I'm dead, I just woke up for a brief moment of time to discover that I'm going to now die. And right. honestly, if we're talking about existential horror, right. that's pretty rough for anyone, 17 right. years old aside. I, as right. far as he knows, it's he went to bed a day ago, he's going to arrive on this comet, claim it, go back home, help yeah. out his space colony, and they're going to eke out a new existence. And that was the narrative he had right. defined himself by as the right. eldest of three siblings. Right. It quickly becomes apparent that, no, he has been asleep for 14,000 years. And in the time that's passed, again, existential horror, which I don't think is fully delivered upon, although they tr- the author tries to, that is a hard thing, I think, to convey, regardless of who the viewpoint character is. He's rescued right. these people who are politically active, try to convince him to join their side without really telling them why until eventually they take him down to this other planet. And right. so we get this brief view of a strange super, super, supreme leader being told, we found him. His response is, go kill him. That chapter ends. Toby gets rescued. Okay, we all know Toby's the one that's supposed to be killed because that's how these narratives right. work. Right. But the fundamental and why the book is called The Lockstep is that this empire has emerged in 14,000 years in which in order to preserve human culture in a form, in a chrysalis that is manageable by the few who own everything. 
not trillionaires. They just own all the fundamental technology. I mean, they're like, they're like trillionaires of today, right? I mean, they, no, they're they're more ethical trillionaires. They're Google. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not so impressed <laughs> with Google. With the, I mean, but, I know. So, okay, let's imagine. Let's imagine. I say let's in the imagine. sense that they act under the belief that what they are doing is specifically ethical, as they have defined. Right. The of that, or if not ethical, then at least the but most isn't effective. That, isn't that universal? I mean. Isn't that the core essence of the way we act? Well, I think this is where the book struggles because it tries in some ways to be too many things. So I have managed to not yet mention that Toby has also been engaged in this universe building program called Consensus with his brother that he tries to interact with Find. It's been deact. It's many, many life cycles out of sync with when he had last gone on it. Obviously, the signal takes too long to get each other. The versions they're playing are not up to date anymore, so he doesn't think too much about that. It's not a huge spoiler to point out eventually that all of this is predicated upon the application of the consensus worlds and theories to human existence over 14,000 years. The locksteps are arguably supposed to make that easier by forcing everybody into cryogenic sleep for tremendous periods of time, typically at a ratio of one month alive and active to 12 months asleep. So yes, the Supreme Leader is only aged 40 years despite having existed for 14,400. One of the major political complications occurring here is that other populations don't want to either adhere to that that, uh, 361 ratio or just the sheer logistical nightmare of what happens when you wake up and suddenly there are 10,000 more worlds that want to join your cult, your culture, your yeah. supreme empire that occurred while you were sleeping. I mean, uh, I, I, I really like the book, but uh, I wonder if we could also think of, you know, I mean, we are writers. I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a semi-writer, but you're a professional writer. Yeah. And, and so how do you think, what can we learn? You know, you know that I love to write and see science fiction. Mm-hmm. And and so do you, and so and so do you. But 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 the question is, how do we how do we move from here? I mean, how do we write new stories that that are not so bleak as Lockstep, that are still somehow within the realm of science fiction without necessarily going into fantasy, or is science fiction condemned to go into fantasy because otherwise it's just going to be so- like Lockstep? I will tell you what I wanted this book to be. Okay, main character is 17 years old. This is often a concession in a lot of pop literature because... Oh, yes, yes, they're very young. Though. And also, it's great for movie translation. It's easy to cast for that age range. It's right. easy to get the teens to spend the money. I mean, there's a lot of practical... And I can't argue against these, particularly if you're a writer who's working to make money, because numbers are in and they show, to quote Jerry Pornell, at one point someone in a book fair asked him how he writes, and he said, I used to write what I wanted to write, and then I discovered who was buying my book, and now I write for them instead. (laughs) Which is rather cynical, but honestly, the man's done well for himself, so I'm not going to fault that way of working, because I think there's a career as a writer for that, if that's what you wish to do. I saw this 17-year-old waking up. He is discovered in this brief moment of re-existing that he is now going to die because the world is unfair. A random occurrence has destroyed his possibility, has destroyed every potential right. he had hoped for. And now he has these brief 30 seconds to make a decision on how he dies. That's, that is how the book begins, in a sense. He has this vain hope of, okay, there's a empty, lifeless planet down there. 
Maybe we'll crash land. Maybe something will wake up. Maybe we'll drift closer. But at least if I go to sleep, I'll have a nice dream. You know, that'll be my end. And part of me wondered, which I think you as a neuroscientist, partly why I wanted to talk with you about this is he goes back to cryosleep. Right. I am not a fan, by and large, of the all, it's all just a dream. But I think for me, what would be fascinating here is the mind of a 17-year-old over the next however many millennia it takes, slowly decaying in cryosleep and trying to come to terms with the end of its own existence, out of which is born this whole narrative of this universe in which he's the emperor of time, whose brother rules everything, whose sister has turned into the prime pope of everything, whose mother is the St. Peter, well, no, his sister is the St. Peter, his mother is more or less the Elijah, who has gone off and will return when it is time to end the universe and to change everything. So here's a 17-year-old whose psychological death rattle, whose way of coping with his to be non-existence, is to construct a dream, one last final dream, because he spent most of his time up until now playing in a VR as it is, where he is the center of everything and his decisions matter more than anything else in the world, and he can make everything right. And that itself is not what interests me. What interests me out of that is, as he tries to construct this predestined narrative in which he is the savior of all and can find peace in that, yeah. there emerge these other characters who lead him to an actual rest. And I think page 295, there's a character, Corva, who's the, you know, 16-year-old, 17-year-old love, obvious love interest who saves him, helps him get away from the people trying to brain control him, yada, yada. But 295 pages in, <laughs> Toby finally sits down and asks her why she has this strange little pendant on her neck, you know, the tree and the acorn. She says, yeah, okay, there's two visions of time, of what it is. The first is the oak and the acorn. You know what that is. He racks his memory trying to remember how Yvain, that's his sister's official religion work, so that everything's predestined, unfolding according to some plan. Yvain basically laid out this belief that Toby, as the emperor of time, says locksteps were the only way for humanity to survive. And it's argued in the book this works because despite the number of uplifted human species and other things that have occurred, proto-humans, AIs that have destroyed, there are effectively these little frozen seeds that thaw out and repopulate the universe. So therefore, thus the need to preserve all of them in this stasis. But that's hope. Well, that, then what, that is a form of hope. And what Korva argues is that she holds on to this locket, not because she believes the, the, oak will always leave, the oak will always fall from the acorn, but that instead, I wear this to remind myself that I don't believe it. I look at time in a different way. It's physics-based. See, when the universe was emerging from the primordial uh, fireball, he has a snarky comment about her using that. And she says, oh, be quiet. As the bang cooled, things began to crystallize out of it. Quarks and leptons, electrons and protons, they weren't there before and never had been and then never were. Before they existed, they couldn't exist. They were impossible. They weren't stored somewhere in some kind of seed from before the bang, Big Bang. They were impossible and they were then they were there. Same with life, she said. Before life existed, how could some immortal observer from outside the universe have seen it coming? It wasn't one of the things that matter did until suddenly it was doing it. And then consciousness played the same trick on life. The point is, she said, gently taking the fingers off her locket, time isn't the working out of a predestined destiny. Time is the possibility of surprise. And Toby's response to this as he thinks about it is, so what does believing in surprise get you? And she says, what do you think, stupid? Hope. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 I mean there are several many wonderful parts but that's definitely one of them. And uh, you know I'll tell you a little bit of what I think as a physicist about that and as a neuroscientist one of the things that physics has is this, this theory of everything where everything basically is explained the matters and everything. Uh, sorry. And Ayn Rand is finally happy. 
Yes, and Ayn Rand is finally happy. And so, so you have everything running. But the question that I started asking is, if what kind of process could start you know, advancing all of it? And that's one of the things you learn in computer science is how to start the process from nothing. You know, How can a process basically slowly build itself? I'm Stephen Levitt. When I'm not interviewing storytellers like your host, Jared Cerf, on my podcast, The Language of Creativity, I consult creatives like you on how to sound your best. Whether you're recording your latest novel or the very first episode of your new podcast, my audio company, I Create Sound, can show you how to find your voice and take your recordings to the next level. Good stories should sound great. Go to iCreateSound.com forward slash story to elevate your sound today. And don't forget to subscribe to Here Be Tigers. Now back to Jared. And this is, I guess, an interesting question because the world in which Toby exists has forms of AI that can more or less perfectly mimic the behavior of humans to the point where you can fool right. yourself into interacting with them as you would another human being. And that's ease your sense of existential loneliness and inevitable solipsism that would emerge out of that. Right. And the ship itself has an AI, which is not really touched upon. Well, I mean, it's not a very deep AI. No. It's just human-like, but it's not very... There's not a lot of brainstorming. Well, it's, it's, it's mimicry. It's mimicry. It's more mimicry than... It's different than... You know, there's no... There's no it's not the AI that is driving the plot. If you remember... 2001 Space yes. Odyssey, okay? Then the AI is the driver of the of the entire thing, right? Well, part of the horror, I think, in 2001 is discovering that we've made our own God. Right. And it is judged against us. Yeah. <laughs> we are found wanting and... <laughs> Yeah, that, that, but that, that's one of the one aspects of its brilliancy, and that, yes. that's Arthur C. Clarke, you know. But but I do not, I did not see this brilliancy in this Schroeder's book. Did you see it? I think, I think there was a lot he wanted to address, and I writers come from different schools on how to tell stories. Some believe you start from a point of view in the sense that I wish to present this argument. Pilgrim's Progress is a good example of that, and mm. narratively. In terms of the evolution of narratives, we've seen shifts in that. One of my favorite examples is Cervantes, who, one, tried to pioneer, well, not pioneer, but he definitely, I think, coalesced the idea of stream of consciousness. And then, upon that, lashed out at the people plagiarizing his character by killing the character off officially in the next book to make sure no one else right. could. He wrote the right. official death of Don Quixote so that no one else could lay claim to that character. Right. He opened it and he closed it. Yes. And said, this is my narrative. I own and I control it. And you can enjoy and appreciate it. And that was something authors, by and large, didn't do to the extent that he had. Very few authors actually killed the character. If you think about Shakespeare, yes. even Shakespeare, I don't think Shakespeare ever actually... Well, there is there is uh, Romeo and Juliet. He transmutes okay. characters. Even the ghosts come back and they're not quite dead. They're just differently right. there. It's like Marvel characters. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair, there's an argument to make that a lot of what we enjoy about comic heroes today is similar to what the, Re the Greeks and Romans enjoyed of their gods and heroes from before. Yes. It that even when they die, 
they just put in AIDS kingdom and then and then they can be liberated from AIDS kingdom. Yeah. Just to answer your question, I think there's a lot of deliberate thought in this book put into the ramifications of the systems that he initially came up with. He was quite careful in asking, okay, if lockstep exists, what are the fundamental consequences of that? And yeah, that, that is the brilliant part of the book. One of the issues is that he couldn't find a good, happy ending for the existence of lockstep. This, is, this will spoil it, but again, as I've said on this podcast before, whether it's my own writing or others, there will be spoilers. Right. Toby is one of three siblings, the oldest. He eventually convinces himself at first that he has to right his siblings' wrongs and correct all of their misbehaviors. And of course, because he knows them better than anyone, he can manipulate them where others just couldn't since there's too much of that hero worship, deity worship, and just right. lack of understanding of them as human beings. Absolutely. What Toby eventually discovers is that in a conflict between his mother and his children and the siblings, she gave him a more powerful vote shareholder status than the others so that he could outvote everyone. And effectively, whenever he's been altering the performances of various technologies, he's just overridden the previous commands. And his siblings right. at one vote apiece can't conflict with that. He's now going to wake up his mother, who has the other dominating vote in all of this. And between the two of them, his siblings will have no power anymore. And he proceeds to try leveraging that into a, okay, yes, you could kill me. The emperor of time would still exist and no one would be any wiser. But yeah. I have turned on her device and you can't keep her from waking up. Now, there is one, I think, honestly bleak and awful moment in the story that is deeply human. Earlier, we touched upon why arguably the family initially left Earth to create this colony and why they decided to rely upon this cryogenic technology. And it was, I, we didn't touch upon the exact inciting incident, but ostensibly Toby's younger brother, Peter, is kidnapped by people who want to get access to his parents' wealth. And the kidnappers are killed in front of him. His babysitter was killed by the kidnappers. This traumatizes yeah. the kid. Consensus is built out of an attempt to help Peter create a world in which none of this could ever occur again, as he and Toby work through the various iterations of government, yada, yada. Again, these are interesting things. These are interesting narrative stories that I wish were delivered or delved into more fully. We learn at the very end of the book that kidnapping incident was predicated by his father, who needed something to create a cause. He needed a victim. He needed a martyr. And he turned his own son into one to galvanize the financial support because all of the money that kickstarted rescuing his son could then be funneled into the beginnings of a colony. And since he's a salvage expert and his mother's a trash expert and cryogenics expert, wife is with. This all just so perfectly gels together. They go off into space and the rest is a story. And that horror is touched upon, but dear God, it is not delivered. Right. I mean, I mean, failed horror is, it's, it's not a, a good thing. No. And that sh this should be the, as much as I don't like the childhood trauma being the villain's motive. Right. I mean, that's, that's also very spent. I mean, he's had 14,000 years to get over it. <laughs> I don't mean to sound crass. <laughs> yeah, if 14,000 years is not enough, then we're all doomed. Well, which is essentially Toby's argument. You guys have put yourself into stasis because you're constantly... Toby's argument, which is, I think is a fair one, is you have built all of this to hide from what happened. Okay. And... So, so could you see this, I mean, as, as more a psychological trip rather than a science technology <sighs> trip? It almost feels like it wants to be an Aristotelian dialectic. Right. in the mechanisms of sci-fi. Right. It does seem like that. But in that sense, it's very done, right? Well, there's not an argument to be made because Toby is right. And he's not just right because his siblings have made him right and made him space Jesus. 
although they have, Toby always has the moral high point. He may make stupid decisions. He may not truly understand the ramifications of what he's doing as people try to tell him. And eventually he realizes that it is effectively impossible for him, despite his phenomenal cosmic powers, to effect change without causing harm somewhere. One of the reasons I was reading this book is that I was trying to find a novelty in science fiction that it sure. doesn't, that makes it not so overly fantasy-like. Mm-hmm. I think that the best example of that is Blade Runner, the original one, mm. in the sense that it goes into how the, the border between human and not human is being becoming harder to define but there's not a lot of space travel. So my question is, given that you have lockstep, I wanted to ask you, do you think, do you think any earthly society will ever think that lockstep is a good option? There's a, there's a fundamental narrative trope in this book, which I think is interesting, and he tries to again deliver upon it. But as I think we've argued, there's so much in this book that I have not even gotten around, as I promised in previous podcasts, to the thermal power, thermonuclear-powered autocats which are how people escape using cryogenic sleep. And I won't touch upon that quite yet, because what I want to address is this deeper thematic of waking up as a, throughout the book, being equated with loss and what's been gone since you slept. That every time you make the decision to cheat time, to go take a nap and arrive on another planet as if it were the next day, so much around you has fundamentally changed. And there's this incredibly tragic character whose entire motive is based upon the one-day his girlfriend is kidnapped and left in a lockstep while he's locked out. She emerges 40 years later, discovers, or 30 some odd years later, discovers her entire family is dead or gone, commits suicide, and this man commits his current, his entire existence to hunting down her kidnapper and punishing him. That's a narrative for a book in itself, in which this universe right. could be explored. Toby, in a sense, doesn't ever have to be a character in it other than the force awakening in the background of all this and is causing things to change. Right. Because then you end up with, I think, to your point, a more Blade Runner-like narrative. You have the point of view of someone who discovers this technology, is horrified as either stranger in a strange land or probably Brave New Story is probably a closer analog in that case. Right. I know this existed. I'm now exposed to it. I don't get why you would vote, why you would commit yourself to it. But now I have to or I have to skirt around it to get what I want. And then it becomes a story of identity of what is he willing to cast off or change about himself to get what he believes is most effective or right or best or necessary for him to continue living. And of course, his vengeance is hollow. Well, actually, no, I take it back. His vengeance is fully vindicated about two thirds of the way through the story by an AI judge. And Why do you think it's vindicated? I mean, I did not see it as being vindicated. The book argues that it is, I think, or presents, I should say, that it is. It's perhaps left open to the reader over whether or not this is actual true justice. I mean, the punishment is that the man committing the, who committed these crimes has to tell them to all of his descendants in person so that they will forever know him not as the wise, venerable human being who has emerged out of this crime he committed, but as the monster he was back when it occurred. Do you remember my original question? Yeah, it's still uh, backward looking. The ethics of, you know, if you don't believe in a supreme being, what is left? I think that it's obvious that in this culture, I mean, they have reached such a power that they do not take a lot of thought about the supreme being above themselves. No, I mean, the supreme being is shown and indicated by very few things. He's Toby, he's the emperor of time, and a few other things. He's a man on a throne. 
He is literally just a Lincoln memorial in space. Right. And but, that is the but, depiction of him. But let's going back to the psychological aspect. Isn't that the essence of being a teenager? Right, which is, I guess, why, to me, I want to see this narrative as the mind of a teenager trying to cope with the horror he is now confronted. Yes. Because that's a much more concise and simple narrative out of which the rest of this complexity feels like it would occur more naturally. I, I, it seemed to me like in the book, it's more like a teenager overloaded with so much information and so much complexity that he builds his own fantasy world mm -hmm. that where, there, where he has this ultimate power that is ultimately a narcissistic power that in reality is not achievable because of the scale of the universe itself. Right. And to a certain degree, Toby discovers that. In fact, the narrative arc is essentially the classic hero's journey. He surrenders the power by allowing every single person who owes a cicada bed, the cryogenic tool you're bound to along with the, or the artificial organs put in your body, to have a single vote in the Cicada Corp organization, whereas only he and his siblings and his mother before had that capacity. Right. So it goes from ostensibly to a pure democracy, which, right. as he says, the worst form of government except for every other. Well, yeah, but which, of course, makes it a very start of 21st century or, or, or late 20th century book. So, and still highly reductive. Yes. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the new Star Wars movie has come out mm -hmm. um, and and Disney has bought Marvel. So I'm waiting for Spider-Man to fight Darth Vader any day now. <laughs> and so... Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things that were really successful, and, and that is mostly due to The Empire Strikes Back, is that you can understand the ethics of the empire and the ethics of the re of the resistance mm -hmm. and and the ethics of the middle ground and i think that one of the things that i saw very poor to be very poor in schroeder's book is that i could not feel the ethics of the members involved you know it's partly a matter of scope they go through so many worlds and so many places that are mirrored after so many different interpretations of consensus there are uplifted chimpanzees and dolphins that are mentioned once yeah. there are ai rebellions that have destroyed entire sections of the universe that have ceased to exist again to a certain extent you don't have to and okay. i am very i am deeply a proponent of not needing to say everything in order and sometimes leaving a, those moments of silence or just brief summation to convey the depth of the gravity. But at the same time, if I have through the entire book not encountered uplifted chimpanzees or humans or thermonuclear powered otter cats, and now they are fundamental to my understanding of why things are the way they are. Then it's a letdown. It's not just a letdown. It's a, I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. What story I am I in like now? When I was reading it. When I was reading it, I got confused. Yeah, I mean, I did not know where to go. Because my thought was, okay, as much as I don't like to pigeonhole books when I'm reading them, am I now in teen fiction? Because that seems wholly appropriate for it. And am I in Hunger Games? Am right. I in The Maze Runner? I wonder, and without having spoken to him yet, I, I can't. And again, I we've been harsh on this book, and I think it's partly because it's so ambitious. Right. Well, actually, I think that it, it's a book that deserved a war and peace scale, 
Okay. Yeah, it needed more space, <laughs> despite yeah. taking fourteen thousand uh, years in the galaxy and, universe. And, and it needed it needed maybe more introspection, you know. And or that's something that would have felt more natural, right? Because if you if you spend fourteen thousand years and you just you know you're just in bursts of time, you wake up. I mean, one of the hard things is. Is, is to grab around your narrative with the universal narrative. And for that, you have to have a lot of a sense of introspection and where do I fit in, okay, in this world that is so uh, at a different frequency than mine, okay? Right, and so therefore his siblings try to create this culture in which they control what is believed so that whenever they wake up, things are the way they believe they should be. Right, which, which is, of course... I mean, it's okay. It's only if you only have one culture with one lockstep type. But if you have multiple cultures with different lockstep scales, which they do, then it's a mess. Yeah. Let me ask you: Do you think the book would be better served by getting more deeply or delving more deeply into the other characters? I think the book will be better served by the reader by reading the book, also being thinking about its location in the space. Of time. I mean, I think the book is very good in 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 explaining that there are different scales of time occurring, mm-hmm. and so I think it could be a better allegory of of what it would mean for an entity that comes and watches the world every fourteen thousand years, and uh, and how does that uh, change its own perception of self? Okay, because the models of consciousness that we have today. They are associated with the, having the time uh, evolution together with the body evolution. I was going to touch upon that with you. What happens when we disassociate those two? Well, when you do disassociate those two, uh, I'm not trying to think of species. Let me tell you about chimpanzees, not the, not the chimpanzees of the book, but the, the chimpanzees we have. Sure. If you only live in the present, like one of the problems is that if you only live in the present, so if you forgot about what just has happened, say, yesterday or a week ago, it's not possible for you to have an idea of self or something that is preserved throughout time, okay? And uh, for evolution-wise. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just, I mean, I'll tell you my personal story, you know. My father lives in Argentina and I live in Portugal. So I only see my father about once a year, okay? Mm-hmm. So... He sees things happening every day in Argentina, and I do a lockstep of once a year, okay, which is maybe one of the reasons I also like the book, you know? Mm-hmm. So I only get to see the reality of Argentina. And this is more, now we have internet and everything, but in the old days, it, we, I, I basically knew nothing until this next time I came around and saw them, right? Sure. So it's very curious to compare the vision of my father and mine, is that my father always feels that nothing is changing. (laughs) And I think everything has changed. People have changed so much from one year to the next, okay? Mm -hmm. Because I still remember what they were, and I only get this blimp of existence. And so I think that one of the things that would be more natural is if someone someone wakes up with large chunks of time, then basically what you have is a tremendous amount of surprise all the time. If I was developing their technologies, what I would have done, and I couldn't find this, maybe I misread some part, but what I would have done is that I would have a kind of a TV recorder, mm. okay, 
that when I was waking up would kind of make me be as if I have lived through intermediate steps in between the space so that I can feel my time period had multiple frequencies, okay? Going in the idea of the killed people, I would have copies of myself living different time scales. Hmm. Just one thing more. Or a community, you know? Like, we as a community, we own a timeline, okay? Mm -hmm. Say that we are both living in that culture, okay? Mm -hmm. You would be waking up in between my 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 two waking up periods okay and then there would be other two people that were between you and me okay mm-hmm. and so with that with that feeling of the space we would make a community of say 10 20 people and we would form a bundle of continuity a group of continuity well, it becomes a quantum timeline. You more or less right. merge the various memories together to have a consensus as to what likely occurred based on the variety of perspectives over and, different and periods of time. your participation in their other things. Right. Okay. Yourself is still maintained. I think, to, to your point, this, I'll relay something that my friend Louisa told me by way of a friend of hers as she was coping with some deeply difficult parts of her life. Right. She said, we don't become different as we age. We simply become more of who we are things fall right. away. And I think part of what we lose when we are disassociated from time is the effects of entropy. And right. it is harder to see that in the actual process, but the gradual erosion of the everyday things that pull away the non-essential parts of ourselves and make us more of who we, what we are ultimately mm-hmm. in the end, that doesn't occur when you are purely a creature of periodic existence. Right. Basically, you, you, you know, and also one of the things that I do not see so much was, was the ethical breaking of if you have so much intermediary time between your actions and the consequences that you're going to observe of your actions. Why do you care? Why do you care? That's well, why I, I read the entire book and I didn't understand why did it still care. And that's part, and part of what's supposed to limit Toby in the end as he improves upon and accesses all the some of this old information, taps into the universal wide web or whatever it's called through these right. glasses, and tries to at first comprehend and then discovers, even with assigning, e- even when he assigns various AIs to sift their data, that is fundamentally impossible to understand 14,400 years. <laughs> because so. in one planet alone, it's a phenomenal amount of information. In the 10,000 right. or so odd that exist at different frequencies and timelines, Within the lockstep that is, or the yeah. empire that his family has created, it's pointless. It's and pointless. people want him to affect change. The primary pushers are folks who, because of who he is, because of the powers he has access to, want him to do what only he can do, even though they better understand than he does what may occur. To a certain extent, it does feel like an abdication from that role. But I do think it takes... A fair bit of wisdom on his part, at least, to understand that he will never, in all likelihood, be capable of using that power wisely to full to its full extent. Right, but that touches me into a, a point of the Greek tragedies: is that can humans understand the gods? And it's partially presented when people find him incomprehensible, or find the idea that his siblings are mere humans who, at one point in time, would chase him around because he had stolen their toys. Mm-hmm. The thing that finally sells it, I think, to Corvo is when he shows an argument or a conversation he had with his sister by the video phone. 
And when she actually witnesses this person reacting to him and who he is based on who she knows of that individual in real time. Wow, I don't remember that part. It's toward the very end, I think, as Elaine is, is hunting them down. And the greatest horror Toby inflicts upon Elaine's forces is having them wander around in real time without the resources to go back to sleep and wait. As they right. suddenly discover there are trees and there are actual nights and there's cold and there's hunger. Because this part of the reason for lockstep is that you could avoid all of this by having those resources collected while you slept. Right. So right. all but, of those... But- drives those things that eat away at us and force us to behave in certain ways right. or compel us to are more alien to the people of now than they are to toby and that to a certain extent makes him incomprehensible to them jared what do you think would be the ethics of an eternal being that is self-sufficient in terms of eating and and energy and uh, and it's also self-sufficient in terms of power. What I mean, so it emperor, needs nothing. A Roman emperor, yeah. okay, more it, or less. It needs nothing. It can. It needs nothing. Do nothing. It does nothing, and it lasts forever. Right. So, should it do nothing, nothing will change by its own volition, which would lead you to no, wonder why. No. It doesn't need to do anything. It but can. It can. Do yeah. it if it chooses. But I guess the question is, what would make it do anything at that point? If it does not right. need to do anything, it has no compulsion to do anything, then what would drive it to act, knowing that given its ability to exist forever, even the smallest act would, in accretion over time, have an infinite amount of impact? Right. Going and back I to the speck of dust for Toby's it, rocket. Right, which I think is a problem that in this book and in other books that you, they try to reach the the concept of and the consequences of ultimate power or is that it's it's like it's like it's a different kind of math you see it's a different kind of math if you use finite numbers or if you use infinite numbers mm-hmm. and 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 what this self sufficient this complete self sufficiency does is that it it also creates a kind of a reduction of interest in others well, are you fully conscious at that point because you don't need to be aware of your surroundings or what's occurring anymore? If none of that hadn't have any effect on you. You disregard your body because it you, doesn't matter. You, In a way, it's it's kind of a reverse solipsism. Nothing matters. Right. It's, all, it's, it's nihilism, pure and simple. It's, it's pure nihilism. Because the sheer amount of inertia someone would have to overcome to make you, the supreme being, do anything. Is insurmountable. And therefore, eventually, you would be forgotten. Yes. Because your existence is meaningless. Right. Until because, you act. Yes. It, it reminds me of Krom, the, the god of Conan the Barbarian. Right. It, it's very funny, you know, because he would say, when he talked about Krom, he says that you shouldn't annoy Krom unless you're really into trouble. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because if you annoyed Krom and you were not into serious trouble, then Krom would punish you. Mm-hmm. But if you'd done everything that you could and you were really at the last moment where you cannot do any more, then you can ask for Krom's help. And hope that the consequences are something you can bear. Right. I mean, I think Toby, if I was one of the underlings, I think I would look at Toby as Krom, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, someone not to be messed with. In a way, you could simply have the chapter of Toby waking up, of him being this terrified teenager, discovering, oh God, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, everything I've ever wanted has ended. 
and have that whole narration, have that existential horror, horror delivered in full. And right. then we never see his point of view again, only the consequences of his actions or inaction. That would be a much better book. It would be because he part of his sister's fear is it doesn't matter. There's a there's a whole portion we didn't touch upon, which is during a political debate. There's there are fucking psychometers that give you power gauges as to your influence over various people and what valence is that. Which, I mean, yeah, it's all predicated off of a video game they created. So okay, sure, we can buy this. But I that annoyed me. The thing is, he eventually realizes that everything he says is prophetic. It it actually takes, I think, an old guy to say, "Look, you saying you want to see your mom means you want to end the universe." And to some people, that means, oh, my God, apocalypse. To other people, that's not even, it doesn't register. That means nothing right. because there's no context for it. But right. in a sense, simply his own lamentations, his own 17-year-old, I'm tired, I want to go home. Oh, the the old uh, teenager uh, nagging? Yeah. Oh, e- yeah. Even I, that I alone is and itself. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of teenager nagging. Which, I mean, you should expect, but... I think yeah, he's to, a teenager. To, to your point. But, but no, but that's wrong because he's really a teenager. No, he's a... <laughs> I don't remember the term for someone who's nearly 15,000 years old. Right, but but it's not teenager, right? No, no, no. I, I, retiree. Yes. Uh, but So the thing is that I think I have seen, actually, there's a there's a, a science fiction books of my, when I was younger, then, of course, people, you can only find it in the collectibles now, which was Alex Moonshine. Okay. Eh? I'm not particularly familiar. No, Alex Moonshine is basically, uh, it's a civilization, it's a, it's a space opera, okay? okay. The civilization is the, is the son of an important senator, sure. female senator. And he breaks several rules. One of the rules is that he stole a dream machine that enables him to contact the dreams. And he steals, and, and, and of course, he's going to be hunted down and killed. And to save him, his family lets him steal a kind of like Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what? Yeah, that basically, but it's a Battlestar Galactica that is white instead of gray. And, well, and, that is this, and there's this capacity of being commandeered by a single person. Okay. Sure. Which I think in a way is more realistic than, than Battlestar Galactica, because really, if you had all this technology, couldn't you have a computer run it all? I think that was an argument lobbied at Moon, too, which is why, if all the technology was capable of doing the mining, would a human being bother to go outside? Right. <laughs> I mean, I can understand for, to your point, yes, if the needs are satisfied, he may, if the lower needs are satisfied or the fundamentals, he may still be bored. The possibility of not existing may be enough to galvanize him into going outside. Right. And, and so the thing is that if you remember my screenplay, one of the things that destroys the, the, the Hoover culture, okay, is they're incredibly bored. It's inertia, effectively. There's not yeah, enough entropy. It's, it's in fact inertia. They they become bored to death because, and and that is a thing that and that I think is a great a great question is because we have this biological we are biological entities that were developed to to eat and choose and hunt. Okay, mm-hmm. but if things are provided us, if the eating is not necessary, if the hunting is not necessary, all we have is the choosing. 
But if this choosing is so abundant, then it becomes impossible to choose because you do not have enough computational power to actually select the best offer. You know, it brings us back to a fundamental portion of the economy in this universe, which is that people don't, by and large, work. They have robots they own, which work and earn money for them, which is then given to them. And the robots themselves are so aware that when they are either feeling too lazy or close to breaking down, they then subcontract out to humans outside of the system. Right. To do work. (laughs) Which is how some of his initial friends earn a living, and he does on occasion. Yeah, I mean, that, that, it's, it's a question of, that is a good parallel. That is one of the funny parts of the book, where it's a good parallel. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Yeah, to, because it's a good parallel to con- contemporary society. And it yes. also brought me back to, do you remember my, my robots that, that believed in God? Mm-hmm. Remember? Yes. The religious robots, mm-hmm. which is actually, I was thinking about it at the same time that Battlestar Galactic was coming out. So I, I was disappointed that I was actually someone else was thinking about that. But uh, well, now you need time travel in order to rectify that. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about, and this is a wonderful conversation. I'm really liking. I hope you're liking it too. Oh no, this is fun. I've missed this. Yeah, and the thing is that what do you take from the book? About, I mean, I can tell you what I took from the book. Okay, so sure. basically, what I took from the book is that it doesn't offer a solution to how to make a worthwhile, better society with the new technology that it will exist in the future, okay? Mm-hmm. Because it's a bleak and everything fails and dies and collapses, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, said this, do, do I think that uh, I could write uh, a better, uplifting story with with the same concept i mean star trek is uplifting right sure but uh, even blade runner is uplifting in a way okay Mm -hmm. but uh, i think that there are three mistakes in this book uh, that i think you know in a future story someone could correct one of them is that no matter how technological or advanced or smart you are and even if you're profoundly atheistic you cannot avoid the issue of death in the sense of if the sun dies, galaxies die. And so no matter what your scale is, I mean, whatever you live, how longer you live, you will die too. They didn't. You know that. Yeah, and they it's interesting because that. there's very little dedicated then other than the sleeping of the eternal sleep yeah. of his mother to those who pass. Right. And technically, his father, there's a moment where he realizes his father, well, first where he fears his siblings are dead, realizes they're not, but then when he discovers in truth, his father is and has been dead forever. Right. And I think that's one of the few times where that loss is, other than Shiloh's narrative, which is the fellow bent on revenge, touched right. upon. And and then, so so this is the, the first, I think, thing that is not touched upon is the the uncontroversible issue of death. The second issue that I think is not touched upon is the possibility of a thorough biological change. And I'm not just saying cryosleep. I'm saying full-on genetic mutation, you know, like full-on. Why would you need to sleep? I mean, why don't you live 14,000 years with complete regeneration of your body? From what I recall of the book, those were all dismissed as having failed at some point. Okay. Which I think is easy. I don't think that's a good answer. 
that's a cop-out. He says, I'm not going to write this book. I'm going to write a different book. It's like Star Trek. You can write just a book about the Borg, right? Sure. I mean, you can just write a book about the Borg or the the founders, you know, those guys that were liquid, liquid yeah. uh, or about just the Federation mm-hmm. or, or the Klingons, by, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But the question is not that. I mean, the question is that he, he doesn't touch upon that. So I think that's that's wrong in the sense that I think very clearly technology is much more going in this way than in space flight. Okay. If you look at the amount of effort that is spent in biotechnology compared with the amount of effort that is now being spent on space flight, it's very clear that our direction is first we're going to take care of the biology. Well, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that shows our current biology is not particularly well suited to being off of Earth. I mean, it's it's like we're clearly Earth-bound in our biology. So we have to change our biology before we start thinking. And then comes to the third point. And the, and the third point, I think, is that he makes very little, in my opinion, alternative philosophical perspectives, okay? Like alternative ethics. Mm. You know, like, okay, what are the consequences of choosing specific ethical approaches? He could talk, he could have talked about it as other cultures, okay? Yeah. I, mean, I didn't see it. No. I mean, I saw one culture with one ethic, having one path with them as leaders, and that was it. Right, and Thisbe, which is the one with the power gauges for politics and the effective actuarial tables of elect- of electees who are representatives who, for a brief period of time, represent blocks of the population. Again, this is all predicated on the notion that they went with the best of the ver- of the various attempts and consensus that worked and discarded the rest. So right. I think, again, he tries to make the argument that most of this didn't work, so we just gave up. And right. if it exists elsewhere, then that's not in the lockstep, which is not where the story is taking place. Which I think gets back to one of the fundamental issues of the book, which is scope. Right. I mean, if you compare it with Star Trek or with sure. Star Wars, it's very limited in scope. I mean, it's the, this the, of, of lockstep. I mean, well, it's it's limited and it is massive at the same time, which is an interesting challenge he's created for himself. But the thing is that I think if you pick up. Uh, of any, say, for instance, just the Death Star in sure. Star Wars, you could make an entire novel just of the command of the canon team of the Star of the Death Star. You know, the people that press the button that destroys the planet. Right, okay? and I think somewhere along the way, to build off of your point, I, I can't assign thought to what he was doing. I can only infer, but I think somewhere along the way, he went from that point of starting simple to emergent complexity and veered into complication. Right. He went from complexity to complication. And then and then it he kind of closed it in the end, but it seems like you have an entropy growing and then you want it to collapse into an ending. But, you know, maybe it should not have ended. You know, maybe it should have just died and you let the consciousness go away. Do you feel that the narrative was too attached to Toby as a character and as a means of changing or, or yes. affecting change. Yes. Okay. I think doing, I mean, centering Toby as a character, it's uh, it's good as a starter. But if you have a thing of this scope, like if you want to do something like War and Peace, you cannot just, you know, it's not just, just about one character, you know. You, you start from one character, but then you have this multitude of characters that arise 
and, and and hopefully each one will have its own story, okay? Sure, and it's they're presented as such in a way. I mean, Corva has her own arc. She's right. a she's a ruin engineer whose job is to right. design things to break there, effectively. But and, it's too Toby-oriented. Right, I mean, by dint of not having any space for her. She goes from that to accidental revolutionary to love interest of the god emperor of everything to just wanting to be a human being again because all this is ridiculously beyond the desires or interest of any human being to stay in. And at the right. end of the narrative, she is a gift, a literal package. I'm using the verbiage in the text itself that is delivered to Toby. It is waiting. Right. He is told that a package is waiting for him in his brother's office. I felt sad for the evolution of her character arc. Okay. Not because it didn't, not just because it occurred off screen, but because that was the finality of it. That's a challenge I give to you and to me and to all our viewers or listeners in this case. I mean, sure, the book's only 350 pages. There's only so much you can put in that. Right. But but I think that most important, and I think it's a worthwhile reading book. I do I too. Mean, if, you, if you're a science fiction, if you like science fiction, and if you're a science fiction uh, writer to be, it's definitely a book to read. Uh, it's a must read. But the the thing is that it's a must read not because of its not because of its qualities, but also because of its flaws. In the sense that by the end, by the time you finish reading the book, you get so annoyed with all the things that are missing <laughs> that you you have this drive. No, I can do better. You know, it's like I can do better than this. You know, which is the opposite from what you from when you see, say, a painting by Van Gogh. You look at it as yeah. There's no chance I can do better than this. You know what I would love to see? Because for me, I find the world he has created fascinating. There's so much here yes. you could explore. There yes. are so many, I mean, just that whole world, which is entirely, this is nothing but glass bubbles and a gas giant. Yes. And the politics of that, there's a whole sport yes. centered around flying outside in the most ephemeral of constructs to play right. some variation on soccer, of all things. Right. There's the whole question of why do all the various uplifted species and post-humans, et cetera, fail? Because the book itself ends on the note, as Peter says, that humans still exist because most post-humans reach the point of not needing anything and therefore not changing anything. Humans, by, by their sheer temporary nature, continue to force and change and demand goods and services and culture and art and therefore force the effective Eternals into doing something in order to stave right. off the inevitable boredom. It's a deeply cynical view of our existence. And I think it's presented perhaps in the similar fashion as Candide's is at the end uh, right. to humble us that no, our job is not to go out and conquer the infinite cosmos. It is simply to dwell within it and find our place. Yes. Yes. I feel that, that I think that you're putting your extensive culture, uh, knowledge, cultural knowledge in top of the book. Okay, which is very brilliant way, but I don't think the book achieves that that level. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it had the time to. Yeah, I, because I don't think it had the time. Uh, one of the things that I think I would have preferred in the book is to have it more, uh, in some ways, be even if you finish the arc of Cody, okay, of Toby, sorry, Toby. Mm-hmm. To have the idea that there are other avenues, other lanes that other people could follow, you know, and, and build. 
stories based on this story, yeah. like a lockstep two and the lockstep three and the lockstep four. Oh, yeah, I, I would different paths. I, I honestly, and I don't know if Schroeder would be amenable to this. Uh, we can try reaching out to him. I would love to see either him or other people take on the vast potential of stories that exist within this world he's presented. Right. Because I think there is a great deal of room in it to right. tell fascinating stories. And I think he has told a fascinating one. Like I, I like Toby. I feel that he is in a, an understandable 17-year-old. And we can armchair writer the guy's work all we want. No, as- no, no. I think it, look, with the two of us, are talking about his work, and he's not talking about our work. Sure. So that, I think, you know, at least to me, it humbles me immediately, okay? Yes. But uh, what I think is that, I I think that one of the key issues about science fiction writing is um, it has to have an emotional impact on the people that actually write, uh, they actually read the books, okay? And uh, and it's... um, it has a way to it needs a way to relate to what we're doing and to give direction and hope for the future a good story can excite us yes but the best ones fiction or not compel inspire or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life remember you don't need to know everything right now but you do need to write So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.